The United States bishops are meeting virtually. Is there anything on the agenda that will impact those of us in the pews? The church is ready to welcome you back with open arms, so are you ready to come home this Advent? Cardinals make news, and does Bishop Parks go with stuffing, mashed potatoes, or both? These burning topics coming up next. Welcome to A View from the Top with Bishop Gregory Parks, Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is a candid and hopeful conversation on current events that affect our church, our community, and our country. Now, here's Bishop Parks and the General Manager of Spirit FM, John Morris. Hello, Bishop. It's always good to see you. (laughs) John, it's great to be with you today. We are in the home stretch of Thanksgiving and Advent and uh, wow, it's all of a sudden it's here. I mean, what a crazy year. And now uh, we're at the end of the year where we can turn our attention to giving thanks to God, hopefully being with family, although it's going to be different this year, won't it? Sure will. I mean, what a what a year 2020 has been, and time does seem to be going quick, and I don't think that's a bad thing at Not this time, that. given this year. I think we'd all like to get 2020 behind us and start a new year. But also, I would say that hopefully, in the midst of this year, even with all of its challenges and difficulties and the illness and deaths and so forth, that um, I hope we can still find some blessings, you know, some things to to give thanks to God for. Um, I know I've been thinking a lot about that recently, and um, I'm a very positive, I'm a hopeful person, so I always look for the good in things. Sometimes it's hard. But yeah, so this Thanksgiving, I I think maybe it's a particular opportunity to reflect on not every, not ever, just everything that happened this year, but, but also maybe some special blessings that God may have given us during this time. What does Jesus teach us about gratitude and showing gratitude and being thankful? Well, of course, that we should be, you know, that all that we have and all that we are comes from God. We're created by God, for God, to be with God, and therefore um, what we have is not our own. And so we should be grateful for that. And of course, uh, the Lord himself gave his life for our salvation, which is truly a gift to us and a blessing and something that we should be always grateful for. You alluded to it a moment ago. Is there anything specific that you're grateful for in this 2020? Still reflecting on that, but I I think, John, you know, uh, for myself, it's been a challenging year as a bishop and as a priest, and I know our priests and deacons and religious can also relate to that, but it's also been an affirmation, I think, of God's presence. You know, that even through the midst of the difficulties and the struggles that the Holy Spirit has guided us through these tough times. And we've still been able to persevere, you know, that eventually we were still able to have mass publicly. People are able to receive the sacraments, to receive God's grace. Praise be to God, you know, among our priests, we had some that contracted uh, COVID, but nobody that was um, that, that passed away, you know. So these are, are the good things that we have to give thanks to God for. One of the things personally for you, I, I'm sure it's a... It, outwardly, it's a blessing. Sometimes it can be a burden as a bishop. But your brother was named bishop in uh, 2020. Will you be seeing him this Thanksgiving? <laughs> That's a good question. And uh, I just talked to my brother yesterday, but we uh, haven't decided yet. We would like to get together, and we've made some tentative plans to do so. question is where we're going to meet and how we're going to meet. So we'll do see you, how that goes. Do you normally go on a cruise at Thanksgiving? 
I have done that, and actually my brother and I have done that in the past. We'll we'll go on a cruise for Thanksgiving, which is kind of nice to, sure. to get away and just to be with family during that time. Can't um, do it now. <laughs> no, unfortunately, that that's one of the things that that's not an option right now. But we are we are certainly going to try to get together in person for a few days and and share some time together, and hopefully Thanksgiving dinner. If not, we'll do what a lot of Americans are going to do this year, which is to celebrate virtually or on Zoom or FaceTime or something like that. What's the typical table fare for Bishop Parks? <laughs> well, growing up, of course, it was turkey and all the traditional side items that you would have. I have to be honest, John, and make a confession, and I hope this isn't un-American, but since I'm an adult and uh, at, at different times when my brother and I have gone out for Thanksgiving dinner, I don't always have turkey. So breaking news. I like it and I will have it. But uh, given a choice, if there's uh, also like a nice filet mignon on the menu, uh, I've been known to order that as well. Right, right. I've seen different polls. And in fact... Uh, when we have large gatherings, we will have discussions about are we having mashed potatoes? Are we having sweet potato casserole? All of these big carbohydrate dishes. Is there a favorite of yours? Yeah, for Thanksgiving specifically, not I'm not a big mashed potato fan. I would yeah. prefer a baked potato over okay. a mashed, but uh, uh, sweet potatoes are good as well. We've had those in the past, or a casserole of some kind. I do enjoy stuffing, as long as it doesn't have some things that I don't care for right. in, in it. I think some people put like oysters in it. Oh, and, yeah, I um, love that. And mushrooms, uh, but that that's not my thing. Nah, so. you want to be coming to my house. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, how about uh, the gravy? Do you like the plain gravy or giblet gravy? I would say probably plain for yeah, myself, yeah. and I, I prefer the uh, cranberry sauce, the actual sauce, as opposed to the uh, the gel right. jello that comes out of the can. Sure, sure. <laughs> Though we've had that as well. I think in you'd the be past. sitting at the table with my wife. I'd be at the other table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing. You know, when you have 12, 15 people get together, everybody brings something. It's all different, so that you can meet everybody's specific tastes, and and really just to come together as a family to hold hands. And in that special time to give thanks to God, despite the fact that this year's a little bit different. And, and isn't that what it's all about? You know, the meal is great, and, you know, watching a couple football games on Thanksgiving right. is tradition and all those things. But, but ultimately, it is about giving thanks. We do that on, on a national level, but as people of faith, Thanksgiving should have a, a special significance to each one of us. Now, John, I have a question for you. Sure. Are you uh, for dessert on Thanksgiving? Okay, or are you, I've already are you, got that answer. Are you, are you pumpkin pie or apple pie? I'll go with pumpkin. This is what we're going to have. We're going to have a pumpkin, we're going to have an apple, and we're going to have pumpkin, apple. How about pecan? And, and pecan. Okay. <laughs> or as we say in the South, pecan. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, very good. With, with a little bit of whipped cream or maybe some ice cream on the side. And then uh, you have that around. We eat around 12, 1 o'clock. And then that leaves you about five, six o'clock for a sandwich and the late ball game. Sounds like you have a good game plan. No, that's the only way to go. And, you know, we talk about planning for that, but, we, you know, the season of Advent is, is right on the heels of Thanksgiving. And that's also a season of planning, isn't it? Season of planning and a season of preparation, mm-hmm. right, for, for celebrating Christmas, for celebrating the birth of our Savior. 
and of course also for preparing and looking forward to his second coming among us at the end of time. So we do, uh, the church gives us this season of Advent to do that, and we do so through prayer and through reflection on Scripture. Sometimes people will take the opportunity to go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation before Christmas, and, and all those are good things, good ways of preparing. We have Thanksgiving on Thursday, and then traditionally, this year's different, we would have Black Friday. Everybody would go out and go shopping, and then, you know, maybe that weekend people start putting up decorations and stuff. Again, this year's a little bit different, and you alluded to it. Spiritually, some parishes have have parish missions. Reconciliation, as you said. What can we do as a household in our own houses this year to prepare advent calendars, that kind of thing? Yeah, those are always a spiritual way, particularly for kids, you know, to prepare and uh, to anticipate the coming of Christmas is through like an Advent calendar. Of course, I would always suggest or recommend we have a creche or a nativity scene within our home. I'm an advocate of not putting baby Jesus in the crib until Christmas. (laughs) So it's kind of that anticipation or looking forward. In other words, that there's something missing until, uh, until we celebrate the birth of Christ, something to look forward to. Of course, Christmas decorations themselves, you know, the the tree, the evergreen, you know, the everlasting life. These are all ways that we can elevate some of the more sometimes material things to a spiritual level and thus to prepare for, for Christmas. You know, there's something special about going through ordinary time, as we call it, and then showing up at church that first Sunday of Advent. And the sanctuary has changed. There might be some trees up. There's some different evergreen arrangements. And you see the Advent wreath. What a great time to come back to church after being gone so long. It is, you know, and it marks the beginning of a new year, right? For us in the church, uh, the first Sunday of Advent is the beginning of a new liturgical year. And just like we celebrate on January 1st, a new year is a new opportunity to make a new beginning. And uh, so certainly in, in our faith, if we've been a little bit lax about going to church or uh, maybe still hesitant, maybe we've gotten into a pattern of watching live stream masses, but we are able to go to church, it might be an opportunity to say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this the beginning of this new liturgical year. I'm going to make a new beginning in my faith. Well, the church uh, here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg is kicking off a, a new initiative called Welcoming You with Open Arms. And uh, really, it's symbolic uh, having uh, Christ on the cross with his arms wide open to receive you. Of course, individually, we we welcome you back uh, during this time where, as you said, if we can go grocery shopping, if we can go run our errands, why can't we spend an hour in church? That's true. And and so we are developing and have developed an initiative called Welcoming You Back with Open Arms. Haven't announced the actual start date for that, but this is something we'll be doing on a diocesan level and have invited our parishes to participate in as well. Kind of a two-pronged thing. It's uh, to welcome back those that have been away from Mass because of COVID, because of fear or other considerations where they didn't want to put themselves at risk. But then also those that may have just in general been away from the practice of the faith. You know, maybe it's been a couple years, maybe it's been longer than that, decades. And, you know, again, it's an opportunity to say that we need God in our lives. Uh, We need the Eucharist. We need the body and blood of Christ in our lives. And uh, to welcome people back and to let them know that we're going to do so in a manner that is safe 
and good for them to come back to church. We need God in our lives. We need the sacraments. We need his grace. We also need community. We need to gather together in prayer and in worship. That, that all those things help us in our journey. Yeah, it's good to see uh, old friends and, and uh, make some new ones when we come back to church. So yesterday as I was leaving work, uh, I was looking for your car at Christ the King Catholic Church for the annual Red Mass celebrated this time at Christ the King. Yeah, it sure was. And um, in spite of COVID this year, we were able to hold the Red Mass, which is an annual celebration in which we honor and pray for and bless judges and lawyers and those who serve in any capacity in, in legal professions. Holds a long tradition in our church's history. And what we do is we celebrate the Mass of the Holy Spirit. The colors of the vestments we wear are red, which is the traditional color for the Holy Spirit. And uh, we ask for the Spirit and for the wisdom and the the gifts of the Spirit to come upon those who serve in the legal professions. They may do so with fairness and with justice, always with the common good in mind. I know the church is founded on the truth and the life of Christ. And even before Christ, there were laws and rules that we read about in the Old Testament, the Levitical laws and so forth. But the church today is also has a, a book of rules. You, you hear terms like it's canon law. How does canon law and what is canon law and uh, the people that you were with last night, do, do, are they involved with that kind of thing? Sure. So like society, like our country, like our community, there are laws and regulations that we follow to protect our freedoms, to protect our rights, and to keep us safe. And uh, it's the same within the church. The church has what is known, as you said, as the Code of Canon Law. It's a uh, series of 1,752 canons or um, guiding principles that the church gives us uh, that we're required to follow as, as guidelines, but also as law for our church. And uh, the main thing that it does is it helps to protect our freedoms as, as God's children. It helps to keep us in line with, with God himself. Uh, It guides the life of the church, the governance of the church, the sacraments of the church, temporal goods. All aspects of church life are covered in canon law. So just like in in society there's laws, so so there is in the church as well. And sometimes we see a convergence of those, and I want to get to that in a moment with regard to the McCarrick report and the state attorney's report. You talked about the rules. There's a catechism and there's a code of canon law. What's the big difference? So the catechism teaches us or gives us the church's teaching um, on our faith. And so that's meant mainly as a teaching tool, as gives us doctrine, whereas the, the code of canon law is more uh, law-based, is more legal. Absolute, uh, maybe? Or is that a not quite the right Well, the right not word? absolute in the sense because uh, canon law, canons or the laws of the church can change. In fact, we've seen recently that some can be modified or added to, adjusted. And, and canon law is not absolute in that there's also what we call jurisprudence, which is how the law is applied. It's the same in, in civil law as well. So um, the church gives us these canons or these regulations, laws to follow, but then they have to be applied in accord with the mind of the church. We've seen at courthouses around the country a move to strip religious statues, the Ten Commandments maybe off the courtroom buildings, and oftentimes this is where we have you know Catholic judges, Catholic uh, lawyers that many times are trying to defend what is there. Is there ever a conflict where 
you know, a Catholic has got to follow the church's law or what they believe in versus what the civil law is? <laughs> that's a great question, and, and that's one, re- one of the reasons that we have the Red Mass is to, to pray for judges that in the difficult decisions, the sentences that they have to render, and the decisions that they make, that they're not conflicted between their faith and what the the actual law is at the red mass uh, that we celebrated it was mentioned that you know judges need to really pray that that has to be part of their duty and their responsibility in uh, in executing their vocation is to really pray about their decisions and to bring it to god now they can't pray within their courtroom but before they go in i i would hope that each one would say a prayer that, uh, that they would make a, a, a correct and a just decision, uh, but also in, in light of our faith and our beliefs. Recently, we saw two documents, reports that were made public. First, we'll start locally with the Florida State Attorney General released a report, I guess it was almost two years ago, uh, began an investigation with the sex abuse that was going on around the state over decades. What were the reports? Well, what did we find? So you're correct. Just about two years ago, the then state attorney general, who was Pam Bondi, announced an investigation into the seven dioceses of Florida, covering, a, I think, about a 70-year period of reported cases of, of sexual abuse of minors. And so we fully cooperated with the investigation over this period. We provided information and some files that they had requested, as well as our policy and our procedures that we follow. And two years later, they they finally issued their report. And basically, there was no big revelations in the report. In fact, as you know, here in our diocese, we actually published names of those who have been credibly accused of cases of abuse against minors. So we've been very, very transparent here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg. And also our protocols, our policies, our safe environment procedures that we have put in place over the last more than 20 years have proven to be effective and that there really have been no recent cases of abuse here in our diocese. Most of the cases that were investigated by the state attorney general's office were at least 20 years old. So I think that's in in the end a positive thing that first of all, we cooperated with the investigation. They really didn't find anything new other than what we've already been transparent about. And in fact, they affirmed, you know, that our policies and procedures that we have in place today are effective. And this was statewide, not just here in our local diocese. That's correct. As I mentioned, it covered the seven dioceses of the state of Florida. Are other states under investigation like we were? They are. I heard recently that there was perhaps as many as 30 states had investigations going on the same for the same issues of what we had here in Florida. And again, there's no reason not to cooperate. Um, you know, we have to acknowledge our sinful uh, past as a church and recognize that there's been a, a small number of individuals that have unfortunately caused a lot of harm and damaged and have committed crimes and they were punished for those things or should be. And then we learn from that and move forward to do better. One of the highest profile was what took place in Washington with uh, Cardinal McCarrick. And that report also came out about the same time. We really didn't learn anything new there either. No, not really. I have to be honest and say I'm still reading the report. I I don't know if you know this, John, but it's about 450 pages long. It's uh, quite lengthy. A lot of footnotes, too. And and there's a lot of things that you really have to get into the details on. I have read a summary of it, and my initial impression is that 
Nothing real surprising there. There certainly it, it brought to light some lapses in judgment in terms of decisions that were made and maybe the timeliness of reporting things, the seriousness which was given to accusations or concerns regarding Theodore McCarrick as he rose through the ranks of the church to ultimately become a cardinal. Of course, our listeners may be aware that uh, Pope Francis has uh, stripped Theodore McCarrick of the title of cardinal, and he has been permanently removed from ministry and from the priesthood. So um, he has been punished uh, as much as he can be at this time in this world. And again, we go forward to learn from this uh, very sad and painful history in our church, and we seek to do better, you know, to improve upon mistakes that may have been made in the past. I think that's where a lot of laypersons like myself wonder about the where the convergence of canon law, church law, and civil law come together because the church has their law, there's the civil law, and they intertwine, and we say, well, we're taking care of the punishment as a church, but why isn't the individual in a federal penitentiary, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, first of all, today when we receive an allegation of abuse, whether it, you know, from the past, maybe it was 20, 30 years ago, the first thing we do is encourage the person to report it to law enforcement. And if they don't do that or aren't willing to do it, we do, you know, because that is part of our civil law that we have to follow as a church. So we're subject to the civil laws as well. Then once we begin investigating a case or even if it goes to a a trial within the church to determine whether the accusation is credible or not, uh, we're guided by canon law and by other laws of the church, other procedures. So as you said, there's a convergence of laws that come together. As a church, we have to follow the laws of, of our civil civic authorities, uh, but then we have our own own internal law and procedures that we have to follow as well. Yeah, it just, it just seems seems like many people say, well, why is Theodore McCarrick in Kansas in a monastery or living with a in a cloistered area? Yeah, and a lot of that, John, has to do with, again, the the civic laws having to do with statute of limitations, which means that a a crime cannot be prosecuted after a certain period of time, whether it be 20 years or whatever the statute might be. So that's the primary reason. And uh, some states have passed legislation that actually opens up the statute of limitations or kind of puts it aside for a period of time. So they'll say, you know, for the next year or two years, if you have any accusations or claims regarding abuse, please feel free to come forward and they'll be considered. You know, I do want to mention, John, that, of course, in the end, uh, you know, all those that have suffered because of abuse, you know, that we want to care for them, we pray for them, we are sorry for the harm that has been afflicted upon them. And uh, never want to lose sight of the victims here and the, um, the, the tragedy and the effects that they have uh, been subjected to. Certainly uh, children of God, and if anyone sees anything, hears anything, or, or a, a party to it, please let your uh, local s- civil authorities know what's going on and let the church officials know, and it'll be taken care of right away. Going into the USCCB meetings, typically they take place in in Baltimore this time of year. I'm sure there'll be some talk, maybe not formally in chamber, but maybe a a little bit about the report. 
and uh, other things going on. Um, but it's not going to be in a big, large room like it typically is. <laughs> no, it's not. And in fact, John, uh, I was just thinking the day we're recording this today is uh, a day I probably would have been traveling or flying up to Baltimore for the meeting. Because the actual meeting doesn't start till a Monday, but we usually have meetings before the meetings, and right. those those can happen all weekend. So I would have been heading up for that at this point this year because of COVID and and the difficulties with traveling. The the meeting for the first time in history is going to be virtual, so we'll be doing a virtual meeting. However, the public sessions will be live streamed, and the public can still uh, watch what takes place and hear the the discussion and the decisions, the votes that are taken. It's going to be a very abbreviated agenda. So uh, normally it stretches out over like three days. Actually, it's only going to be a total of about, I think, eight to 10 hours this time of online meeting. But yes, I, I think on the agenda is the discussion of the McCarrick report and getting reaction from bishops on that. And, and that will be part of our public session. Mm-hmm. Anything else that the, the people in the pews would be interested in at all? I, you know, John, the, the, really, I think the bishops decided at this meeting because of the format of it, that it would just be essential business only. And um, I actually have one of those items of essential yeah, business. I'm, as, sure as a treasure. I'm the treasurer of the conference, so I have to present our budget for next Ugh. year. So, <laughs> that's gonna be so a hoping tough one. that uh, hoping that that'll get approved. And uh, but that is one of the essential things we do have to do. Okay. Uh, but again, the sessions will be public, and there'll be coverage on it, so the faithful can follow what what transpires. Well, Bishop, uh, we're all out of time. So as we wrap up this program. Would you lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving of all those things that we need to be thankful for this season? Of course. So let us pray. God, our Father, as we approach Thanksgiving, we give you thanks and praise. Even in the midst of a difficult year, many challenges and adversities, many sorrows in our lives, we know that you are always with us, that you are leading us and guiding us and and blessing us. As you have blessed us always, and especially with the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us that we might have life. And so, Lord, we thank you today and just ask your continued blessing upon each one of us. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. For more with Bishop Parks, including past programs, his social media accounts, and ways to subscribe to this podcast, visit dosp.org bishop. A View from the Top is a production of Spirit FM 90.5 and the Communications Office of the Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is made possible by the annual Pastoral Appeal and listeners like you. Thank you for your support.